let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We're continuing our study in the gospel, and we go where the text takes us. I really try to be true to that and think sensitively to what is the Lord speaking to us about and what are we supposed to be thinking about. I themed the section that we are studying, verses 1 to 12, as fighting for marriage because I think that's what Jesus is actually doing. And I am believing that God is fighting through marriage through the teachings of Christ in the 21st century that we're living in. Marriage is, as a definition, has become so confused and so different in our culture that to define it like God's word defines it, man, woman, monogamous, once and for all, running the marathon together, that's almost tipping towards hate speech in terms of what people say, oh, well, what do you mean by that? And we just want to be true to the text because we want to be true to the design of marriage because we believe in the design because we believe in the designer of marriage. Jesus brings everything back to Genesis one twenty-seven and following just to say everything comes back to the beginning and this is what a man is, this is what a woman is, and they become, the two become one flesh, and it all is part of a big picture that is bigger than marriage. I was thinking of this first hour, after first hour, I was talking to somebody, and, and it, a thought came to me that in heaven, we're all going to be single. We, we enter the world single, and everything sort of resets there, and so the goal ultimately is, is heaven and being these individual worshipers like the angels. But in, in the meantime, some of us get married. And each marriage is a picture of God's covenant commitment to the body of Christ. Jesus is the perfect husband. Uh, the bride of Christ is the imperfect bride that is washed by the shed blood, sacrificial love of, of the shepherd who is the lamb. And it's amazing to think that each marriage is a picture of this covenant faithfulness that God will never let you go and he will bring you into heaven one day. And so why do you learn about marriage? You don't learn about marriage to try to figure out your own situation. That's not first and foremost. You know, should I be married? Wait, I was married. Should I get remarried? I've been widowed. I've been divorced. Wait, I've never been able to be married and I'm, I'm working through that. All of those scenarios are real and are personal. And, and cut deep in the life and heart of every individual. And I don't want to dismiss that whatsoever. But I don't want you to give yourself permission to disengage from what I think Jesus wants us to learn about. Jesus was single. He was single his whole life. He's the perfect picture of singleness. And he is heaven on earth. And he's talking about marriage. And he's talking about covenant. And the commitment that is displayed there in the one flesh relationship that was from the beginning. We need to learn what that's all about because marriage defined biblically informs reality. What is a man? What is a woman? What, how does society grow? How does the world populate? And what does it all mean, this temporary picture that ultimately is going to be perfected in heaven with Christ and his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb? This is gospel talk. And so to talk marriage is to talk truth, to defend marriage biblically is to defend the truth, and to defend the truth is to evangelize the world. We stand for marriage because we're standing for the truth, and I hope that 
message was clear last week because that's where I think Jesus is going. He's looking at this as a launching point to speak truth into the naysayers who were the Pharisees. It's a sobering message to look at um, because we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 9. We're talking about divorce uh, this morning. We're not just talking about divorce, but it is a heavy topic that is just coming to us in the flow of the text. We need to talk about it because we need to understand what the Bible teaches about something that can be so heartbreaking. But we need to remember that we're talking about this in terms of what I theme as point two in our series, which is divorce is God's merciful concession to the original design of marriage. Divorce can be a mercy for people um, where it is God's dealings in a person's life. We need to learn about that. Our text is uh, um, kind of trifurcated, verses 1 to 12 into three points. The first point was last week's message, which is the first reason Jesus fights for marriage. Three reasons. First one was marriage explains God's original design for men and women, and we've talked about that. And then secondly, divorce is God's merciful concession. But let's get a running start Let me read our text and give us a running start to give us context for what we're going to dive into at verse 7 and following, but begin with me at verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let's stop there. The key pivot point, I think, in understanding what's going on here in light of divorce or no divorce is the phrase that I just read in verse 6. What therefore, therefore meaning all of what he's just said about it was this way from the beginning, male and female, the two become one flesh. What does this therefore mean in light of the question that the Pharisees are asking where, can you divorce for any reason? Kind of based on Deuteronomy 24, this case law scenario that I'm going to unpack again. Uh, how do we apply this? What Jesus is saying is that what God, therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Man is not the author of divorce. God is the author of marriage, and so if there is a divine concession made, it's going to be God's dealings in the life of a, an individual, man or woman, couple. It's a dramatic outcome. It wasn't meant to be this way in terms of the design and the designer, but there is a divine concession. 
There, is, there are providential opportunities where people need to undergo something like this. The context, again, is Jesus is in his final lap of ministry, three-year ministry. He's coming down from Galilee um, along the eastern side of the Jordan River because he's over in the area called Perio, according to Mark's parallel. Um, He's there in a hostile region where the Pharisees want to um, trap Jesus and catch him in a political community under Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who had stolen his brother-in-law's wife out from under him, had sort of forced a divorce for Herodias to leave. And and so then you have Herod Antipas, who's one of the other tetrarchs, uh, Herod leaders, who takes Herodias and then ultimately executes John the Baptist for preaching against all of this madness. This crazy adulterous affair at the highest level. John the Baptist had none of it. Antipas says, off with your head. The Pharisees want to trap Jesus with a question, tying it to some case law that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 24. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses wrote this as the final sort of word for the um, the Israelites going into the promised land. If and when these things happen, where a divorce happens, here is a limiter on that issue that's going to happen. And what the Pharisees do is they lock onto that and they command, they take, they turn and twist an allowance into a command and try to force Jesus to say, are you going to go with this command or not? You're going to go against the Bible or are you going to go against Antipas? You're at a fork in the road. You're going to reject truth or are you going to get your head chopped off for it? That's where we want to set you up. And this is Jesus's way to respond. He responds by saying, well, let me take you back to the context of Deuteronomy by going back to the beginning in Genesis 1. This is how we evangelize. When you're trapped, when the world brings you to a crossroads, bring people back to the beginning. Who is God? Who is the designer? Who wrote the Bible? Who makes the rules? What's reality? What is a man like? What is a woman like? What is marriage like? What does it mean? What does it mean in light of heaven and eternity and our sin being forgiven by Christ? This is evangelism. This is what Jesus is doing. He answered, verse 4, have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female? Again, this is grammar school speak. This is obvious to everyone. No one is confused in this context about what a man is and a woman is. And then spiritually speaking, that God is joining two together to be one flesh, just like it was with Adam and Eve, mind, body, and spirit, union. The beauty of that is together. And what God has done, no man should be the author of separating that. And so verse 7 shows their strong rebuff and rebuttal to all of this. And that brings us to point two, divorce is God's merciful concession to the original design of marriage. They rebuffed by saying, why then, verse 7, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Um, They're insisting that case law is a command. It's a twisting of scripture. To command is to literally give orders as if God said, you need to divorce. You find something, you divorce. That's it. And that's the point of Deuteronomy 24. It wasn't that at all. Deuteronomy 24, again, verse 1, a man takes a wife, he marries her, he finds no... Then if he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, which is not described for us here, but it's a a scenario where something's not right in the marriage. Something is 
terribly wrong and he writes her a certificate of divorce. It doesn't say he's supposed to do that, but if he does that, that's creating a chain of reaction here and then that needs to be curtailed with a limiter and that's what Moses is doing. He's not commanding it. He's not saying the person should do that. But if that happens, he puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, hates her. I mean, that's the context of the hardness of heart here. This, this woman is being treated now as damaged goods. He hates her. He, he finds out or, or, or knows of something now or, or something's wrong. And especially in this man's heart, he hates her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, I mean, these are all scenarios that could happen. Who took her to be his wife? Then the former husband. So the man that has taken her has either sent her away because he hates her now or he dies and she's free to be married again, at least on a legal sense. The former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. You can't act like pagans here and just pass this woman around. You can't do that after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. The defilement is not her indecency. The, the defilement is how she's being handled. For that's an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the idea of protecting the covenant community, I think protecting this woman in this, in this case, and limiting men in terms of their commitments, because if they're going to do something, then they can't have buyer's remorse and just pragmatically have things back. What is the issue here? The issue beneath the case law comes back to the explanation Jesus gives in verse eight. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The issue and the seed of what goes wrong in marriage where it, it spins into divorce is a hardening of heart. It's always this. Modern psychology, sociology, Malcolm Gladwell, different, you know, and the like, they'll, they'll say, look, the big issue that always is the death knell to a marriage is the issue of contempt. He did a behavioral study where as soon as he saw any sort of reaction of contempt from one spouse to the other, he knew it would be over. It's where you're scoffing and disdaining and looking down upon the other person. Well, that kind of behavioral science is terrifying if you think about it, because you think, well, what point, if that goes that way, is it over? Have I sealed my fate one way or the other? And I think that the issue is that sociology and psychology can only operate in terms of its worldview on the basis of behavioral science and what is understandable in terms of experiments and observable um, behaviors. And so they can only try to solve that by saying, change the behavior. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Whereas the Bible goes deeper and says, what is the sin issue behind the content, behind contempt or behind the resentment or behind the attitude? And you have to deal with that and understand that, that there needs to be a heart change or otherwise you are in a hard hearted state, which is the pathogen, if I can use that word, the agency that goes in and through the heart and to the other marriage partner and implodes the thing in the first place. It's the hardness of heart. Uh, the Greek word for hardness of heart is 
um, an interesting and illustrative, illustrative one. It's sclerocardion, which is where we get the medical term of scleroderma. It's the hardness of skin around an organ, in this case, the cardia or the heart. So it's hardened skin around the heart in the physiological sense is what actually shuts an organ down. It's an autoimmune disease where the disease is hardening or calcifying the organ to the point where it just stops. And that's what's happening spiritually in a person's heart where they are in an unrepentant, proud state, holding themselves up. They're looking down on the other person. Why? Because of the own, their hardness of heart. It's an undealt with heart that becomes the evil that interrupts the flow and the joy and um, the function and the reason for marriage. The real combatant, combatant in a marriage is the resonant evil that is undealt with. We all have sin in our heart, but sin has to be dealt with. If you go back to the Genesis story, you remember Man and woman, both created in the image of God, co-equal heirs, co-regents of the grace of life. Peter talks about that in First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that you live with your wife in an understanding way because they are a fellow heir of life, an heir of grace, um, a kingdom citizen. And so all of that was perfected in the garden without sin. There was no sin. There was no death. There was unity. There was harmony. There was peace. Everything was positive until sin entered into the calculus here. The man fell, the woman fell, they committed sin, they injected this pathogen of sin inside of the marriage. And it's not hyperbole to say that this was magnified at least times two, because you have this compounding of of sin that's just expanding in habits and Behaviors, all of that needs to be understood in light of what happened. Let me just read Genesis 3, 7 and following to give you a, a picture of what was going wrong. We'll unpack it because we need, to, we need to understand what's wrong in marriage. Then the eyes of both were open. This is post their sin. And they knew that they were both naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God, Lord God, among the trees of the garden. Uh, the first consequence of sin is sensuality. The eyes of both of them were open, verse 7 says, and then shame. They sewed fig leaves together, the man and wife hid. Why? Because for the first time in their life, in their existence, their nakedness toward themselves and each other was perversion. It was perversion. They had never felt perversion. They had never felt the guilt of being perverse in their own minds or actions before that moment. That's why they are said to be naked and that's why they are said to be ashamed and that's why they were covering themselves because they were trying to deal with an external solution to an internal problem and that's why they hid from the Lord because by covering themselves, they they still felt naked and unclean before the accountability of God. This is why people don't want to talk about marriage. This is why they don't want to deal with it biblically because you have to talk about these issues if you're talking Bible. Otherwise, hey, let's talk evolution. We're like the monkeys. Let's talk that way. That'll make me feel better about what's really going wrong. All right. I'm preaching too much here because we'll never get through it. Okay. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. The Lord God had called a man and said, where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And man said, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's stop there. What else is going on? You have sensuality of shame and now you have shifting. They're all alliterated with S, forgive me for that, but shifting or blame shifting. The woman you gave to be with me, the serpent deceived me. This is verses 12 and 13. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts in the field. On your belly you shall go, on dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall... Bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorn and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You have sensuality is exposed, you have shame is exposed, you have blame shifting or shifting where you don't want to take responsibility for sin. And then sobriety, verse 15, between your offspring and her offspring, there's a war going on now between you and Satan forever on earth. And Christ is the only one that can crush the serpent's head on your behalf. And he did once for all, and it can be applied and forgiven and your heart can change, but that enmity with God exists and you're sobered by that, according to verse 15. These are all the fallout effects of this pathogen called sin. And then there's suffering, verses 16 and 17. I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's pain in this world. If you don't believe me, just walk around the backyard in your feet, your bare feet, and find the stick. There's pain. It hurts. It's hard to work. It's hard to do things. It's hard to give birth. I have no idea what I'm talking about. There's pain, and that was promised. Before, before sin, there, I guess, was no physical pain. If you think about heaven, there's no, much, no more pain in heaven. The ultimate pain reliever is heaven. Then there's strife. Verse 16, you can look back up at your text if you're following it in Genesis 3. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's the strife in marriage. Ultimately, the last consequence is death because uh, verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken and you for you are dust and to dust shall return. So all of that is there. It's the effects of sin. There was no death before sin. That's why we don't believe in evolution. But verse 16, I want to just look at what's going wrong in a marriage. If you look at the text, it's uh, pretty obvious. Genesis 3.16, the woman to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring for children. And it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Desire and rule here are not positives. This is not like Song of Solomon, like it's the same Hebrew word there, it's strong desire positive. Uh, this is strong desire negative. This is kicking against his leadership. And his leadership is oppressive in terms of ruling or overruling the wife. 
This isn't co-regency and harmony and friendship. This is being an overbearing husband and an unsubmissive wife. Genesis 4, 7 proves it out because the same Hebrew language uses desire in this way with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was digressively spiraling down. His sacrifice had not been approved by the Lord where Abel's had. He becomes jealous and he becomes grinding in his heart where he's so angry he becomes homicidal against his brother and ultimately kills him. Before he kills him, God warns him in verse 7 of Genesis 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's a personification of a lion. There is something that is going to gobble you up in your heart. It's going to harden up if you don't repent. It says, its desire is for you. You must rule over it. You got to work this out because you've got this sinful desire that's welling up inside of you. It's making you either passive or making you aggressive. And in marriage, you have husbands and you have wives who are both passive and aggressive in their sinfulness all the time. And you know this to be your experience. If you're in a marriage, there are temptations to each to be overbearing and domineering and ruling over or to be um, passive and, and, and not wanting to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the home. I say it that way because Paul ultimately clarifies that true function, functionality And true health in a marriage all comes down to one thing, and that's Ephesians 5.18. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. You say, how do I deal with the hardness of my own heart in marriage? Do I wait until my wife is good enough, and then I'll be a good leader? Or if she's not good enough, then I'll excuse myself for being a bad leader? Am I going to be a Mr. Fix-It to get everything right by my own flesh? Or to a wife, am I going to just kick against this imperfect husband all of my marriage? All of that is the hardness of our heart and the flesh and the battle that was waged in our own life. How is that solved? It's solved by Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. I'm not just talking about physical alcohol. I'm talking about the worldliness that you can be ensnared into thinking like, but be filled in the Holy Spirit. Literally be filled or plurao in numity. You're, you're connecting yourself to God's Holy Spirit. We do that by the word of God. We do it with a submissive heart. And we say, Lord, I am, you have, you've put me together with this partner and I'm going to marathon through this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Husband to wife, sacrificial servant, loving his wife like Christ loved the church, serving in proactive leadership, just like Christ did, serving his heavenly father, obeying his will and, and humbling himself going to the cross. That's strong leadership in humility and service. The wife being submissive, being respectful, respecting a husband because of God, because Jesus respected the Lord. Wives respect their husband as unto the Lord. They're respecting the Lord through their submission. How that all coalesces, I'm not saying that abuse should be allowed in either camp with the wife or the husband or the husband and the wife. I'm just saying the spirit-filled life is what answers how you can deal with your hard heart. You have to yield it to the Lord in submission to him. It all flows out of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. We're going to have a marriage conference coming up, uh, by the way, at the beginning, beginning of August, I believe. It's Joe and Heidi Keller are coming and they can unpack all that for us. All right. So let's move on. I've got five minutes to get through, what, six more, five more pages of notes. 
but I think I've said a lot of this anyway. It really is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In James 4, all the strife, all the arguing is solved in humility. The Holy Spirit, it says in James 4, the Holy Spirit jealously um, presides over you. He jealously wants fellowship with you. How do you get fellowship with the Holy Spirit so you can live in a cohabitated state with somebody else who has a hard heart? It's, it's humility. Humility is the door. Pride is what blocks God's grace in your marriage, in your life, in your parenting. Humility is the answer. First Peter 5, 5, the command is repeated. The promise is repeated. In the context of being humble to the elders. Well, again, verse 8 is talking about the true pathogen, what really goes wrong in a marriage that is devolving. And then verse 9 gives another limiter on marriage in terms of divorce. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here it is, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The exception clause I've put under this second point where this is, again, it's a merciful concession of the Lord when there is porneia in the marriage. You say, what is porneia? Immediately, sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia. When you hear that word porneia, what do you think of? You think of internet pornography. I mean, now multiply that by a million in terms of AI that's out there and how automated you know, catalyzers for sin are going to be and are present today. You say, we don't have a shot. If, if involvement with that disqualifies me from being married or disqualifies my spouse from being married to me, what am I going to do? Well, remember, all of AI or all of pornography, all of these catalysts are just magnification of what is truly there in the heart. If you deal with your heart before the Lord with the Holy Spirit and you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit and God's word, that's what delivers you from the junk drawer of pornography. Porneia is um, sexual immorality. It's not just talking about classic adultery. Physical adultery is disqualifying or it's grounds for divorce. But porneia is broader than that. So a hard-hearted person who's given over to the junk drawer of pornography, given over to it, unrepentant from it, could bring grounds for a divorce. Could. It's important to know that. How do you know when there's grounds for divorce? Is physical adultery automatic divorce? I don't think so. Is pornography automatic grounds for divorce? No. What's grounds for divorce is someone who's unrepentant and hard-hearted and unwilling to listen. In Leviticus chapter 20, it says, if a man commits adultery with his wife and his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress will surely be put to death. Well, in that case, under the old covenant, it's pretty clear. If someone commits adultery, they're just killed. And so then the spouse is free to remarry. Spiritually speaking, though, what does that mean? Even in the Old Testament, when Joseph, and I said this last time, found Mary to be with child, he was going to put her away quietly. He wasn't going to give her the death penalty. In John chapter 8, you have the woman who people were picking up stones to kill. And he told the woman, go and sin no more. 
uh, you have David and Bathsheba. David committed bath, um, adultery with Bathsheba, and he was not killed. So this is a case-by-case thing. And if you trace out Leviticus 20, 10 through 20, there's a lot of different scenarios where people are absorbing penalties for what they did or did not do. And that just tips, uh, gives me insight in the fact that people were applying this in a case-by-case basis. And I think a lot of it comes down to the state of heart as to whether or not something is made permanent. Even in today's New Testament church, if someone commits adultery once or is co- committing porneia and sin, if they are unrepentant over a long assessment with leaders, um, that can clarify whether or not someone needs to divorce or not. Really what you're clarifying is this, what God has brought together, let, no, let not man separate. That word separate is divorce. What you're dealing with when you're assessing whether a person's heart is going to soft, soften and truly repent is you're dealing with whether God is softening that heart, whether God is restoring the marriage, whether God is keeping together or God is adjudicating a divorce. This is God's dealings. It goes back to the Pharisees' question. So can a man you know, divorce on, on any grounds, you know, um, for any reason is the language. Is that really what we're dealing with Jesus? And Jesus is saying, this is God's dealings in the life of someone. First and foremost. And the exception here that is a divine mercy is sexual immorality. Because if you whimsically divorce someone and you don't have grounds, and you marry another, guess what you're doing? You're committing, verse 9, you commit adultery. Why? Because it doesn't matter what's going on legally at that point. If you have an unbiblical divorce, if you do not have grounds to divorce and you marry someone else, then in the eyes of God, you're cheating on that spouse who you were committed to in the first place, who you were one flesh with. You broke it, and you went outside the marriage and remarried, even legally, and it's wrong, and it's adultery before the eyes of God. This is what is God doing or not doing that matters. First and foremost, it's not a glib decision. There is one other place where there is grounds for divorce that's mentioned in Scripture, and that's 1 Corinthians 7. Paul uses some interesting language because he's bringing up a new scenario that Jesus did not specifically detail when he was talking on divorce in Matthew 5 and also here in Matthew 19. This is where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit in verse 12, says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, meaning the Lord didn't say this before, but now I'm saying it. He's saying it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it has the same authority as what Jesus had said. He says, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. What's going on there? Well, you're, a, you're an unbeliever and you marry an unbeliever and then you become a believer, but your wife or husband doesn't become a believer. Do you have grounds to leave them? Because you, you have no spiritual communion in the home. And Paul is saying, no, you stay together. This is your lot in life. This is your evangelistic assignment to stay together. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, because verse 14, if the unbelieving husband is made, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 
What Paul is saying here is that the potency of the gospel in the home is so profound that you have a sanctifying influence even on your unbelieving husband. You might even win that husband to Christ, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. You're winning them without a word by your holy testimony in the home. That was Peter to the wives with an unbelieving husband, winning them with your life. You're, you're winning your children to Christ by being a believer in the home. It's running this marathon with an unbeliever if they consent to live with you. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. If they leave because it's too hot in the kitchen, then you can let them go. And you're not committing adultery if you get remarried. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, how hot does it get in the kitchen? Well, if you live a godly life cohabitating with an unbeliever, it really pricks against that unbeliever's conscience. And I said this first hour, you've heard this story before. I worked a construction crew one summer, a framing crew when I was 19. And uh, it was a really hot environment, cranky workers. And the boss was uh, this sort of strong, overbearing guy. And he used to like, you know, take the nail gun guard off and shoot nails at us and throw hammers and stuff like that and tell us to get up on dangerous things. You know, one time he took my wrist up against the wall. He said, let's play Jesus. You're a Christian, you know, but he was mad. And uh, it goes without saying, but he was mad at his wife. The one person that stood up to him that could uh, scare him was his wife. He wasn't scared of anybody. But in these like sort of quiet lunch moments, we're all sitting in the shade. It was super hot in Virginia Beach where I was sitting in the shade. He would talk and he would say, you know, I married this um, beautiful woman, my wife and blah, blah, blah. And then she became this Jesus follower. I don't understand it at all. And what was interesting is she's also a black belt in karate. So she was talking, she was talking about, she's a black belt and she, she understood how to use weapons like size and cool thing. He would like draw pictures. He was like, I just, I, and he would bring it up and bemoan his life because she was this believer in the home and he didn't understand it. But that's the power in the home of being a believer. Verse 16, but you're free if they leave. In such cases, the brother or sister is, verse 15, not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life, listen to this, that the Lord has assigned him. And to which God has called him, this is my rule in all the churches. Please don't miss that language because that is the language that is making the point of the text. It's what God has done. Why, do we, why are we not whimsical about marriage? Because from the beginning, it was so that man and woman would come together and become one flesh. That's what God has brought together. What God's brought together, let not man separate. Let not man meddle with. Let not man divorce. You run the marathon. But there are exceptions where there is a divine mercy given to a spouse in abusive homes or a home where someone is abandoning or a home where someone is hard-hearted and unrepentant with pornography or sexual sin or adultery. In those cases, that believing spouse is free. Doesn't mean that necessarily you leave, but there is at least mercy here in this regard. Every scenario is different. I just have to say that. This is case by case. I don't want you to listen to this teaching and only be thinking, what do I do in light of what has been spoken? 
our goal is to champion marriage and to believe that this is part of God's design because we're standing for the designer. We want to stand in the ranks with Jesus. Come what may to us, you may have been divorced. You may have never been married. You might be in a hard marriage. You might be a believer who's married to an unbeliever. You might have any manner of hurt and hardship in your life that's based on marriage, but we can still stand for truth and stand for what God has designed because this is evangelism as people watch our lives and watch how we respond to our particular lot in life that God has called you to live. God's called you to live your life today in light of where you are right now. You say, well, what about this? What if I was the one that was at fault in a sinful divorce? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? What if your remarriage in the sight of God is adultery? What if that is the case? Well, remember, God also forgives adultery. God forgave David. He'll forgive you. Yeah, you'll be chastened. Yes, there are consequences, but it's not the end. Not as a believer. Adultery is an act. Is, it's destructive. Hard-heartedness is destructive. But it's not the unpardonable. Listen to these words written by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think they're incredible. It says, on the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I'm compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a terrible sin, but God forbid that you should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. I hear the word of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. Next week, we're going to talk about singleness. I think it's the unspoken, you know, in the room. We have to talk about it. It's important to it to talk about because the singles need to see their great opportunity with God's preferred exception in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together, time in truth, time with a a hard topic. And I pray, God, as our brains are filled, that our hearts would be open to listen to what you have said to our individual life and conscience for what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And let us not be empowered by the world, but filled in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.